end of the Perimeter Church podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. I'm excited to be with you this morning and, and really excited about this series where, uh, where I think the Lord is leading us as it pertains to what you just saw there, where we live, loving where we live. I love some of the language in that video that you just saw leading us into this teaching of you live somewhere and it's not accidental, it's not coincidental, it matters, where you live matters. Um, this series is what we're calling, you saw the title is Loving Where You Live, but it's really, uh, it's called a theology of place. Theology, the study of God, but then particularly as we think about God, what God, the task that God has given us, the, the, the way that he's working and moving in the places that we are. And so in our cities, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplace, where we do life, that's what we're talking about. So as we think about this, as we move into it, I want to stop first and foremost and pray for us, pray for our time together, and then we'll jump in. So let's pray. Father, thanks for this time together, and Lord, uh, we count it a great privilege, such a privilege, to come before you each week, to open the word of God together, to ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and to fill us, to give us eyes to see the beauty of your story and the gospel and Jesus. To see the grandeur of who you are. To hear the sweet words of your scriptures and may they be taught well this morning. Would you use your servant to speak your words and anything that's not of you, would it fall on deaf ears? God, we give this time to you. We ask for you to have your way with us. Accomplish what you will with us. Make us humble recipients. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a student at Alabama, University of Alabama, no boos and hisses, please. Um, I was there, when you think of Alabama, obviously the, what we love to talk about is football, but don't think about how Alabama is today. When I was there in the late 90s, we were bad. We were really bad. We, we affectionately call those years the Dubos years. There were four years that we did not win a lot at all. And those were my, happened to be my four years in college. That was fun. Um, so there were many, many times that we would leave the stadium, that my buddies and I would leave the, leave the stadium, and we would be dejected and discouraged. And even though we knew it was probably going to happen, that we weren't going to win the game, we just, we wanted to win so bad. And so we're walking out, we're frustrated. And so it became very common for us to put our arms around each other as we're walking down the, the ramp out of the stadium. And in an effort to console our, uh, ourselves and each other, we would say to each other, arms around each other, and we'd say, the souls of men, the souls of men, brother. And that was a, a real Christian way of saying this doesn't matter. Football doesn't matter. Some of y'all need to hear that this morning, don't we? Uh, <laughs> I didn't plan on that. Uh, football doesn't matter. It really doesn't in the grand scheme of things. And so we say, hey, what really matters? What really matters? The souls of men. You know, let's march out of this stadium and go change the world for Christ, right? That kind of thing. And, and that was certainly a true statement. Absolutely. The souls of men matter, clearly, biblically. You don't, I mean, you read, and it's obvious that God is writing a redemptive story 
that emphasizes the value of men and women and the, the redemptive plan he has to bring this wayward people back to himself. So people clearly matter. But if that's where we end our gospel, if that's all we proclaim about the story that, Scott, that God is writing in the scriptures, then we're lacking. We're leaving something really significant out. Many of us have grown up in a tradition, perhaps, where we have been taught that ultimately all that lasts, all that's going to matter in the end are God, his word, and the souls of men. In fact, that's what I was taught by the guy who discipled me in college, who is still one of my dear friends and brothers. We, we text and talk often, and, uh, but he was taught, and therefore he taught me as he poured his life into me, that he would say to me often, Jeff, the the things that last are God, his, his word, and the souls of men. And so therefore, I turned around and I invested that into others. Probably my first five years as a college uh, minister on the, on the campus, that's what I would teach people. Hey, you know, God, his word, and the souls of men, nothing else. Don't invest in any of those other things because those are the three things that will last. So invest in those three things. And if that's where, if that's where we go, if that's what we believe, then here's what happens. The implication of that is this. What we end up living is a life that says that this world is simply a place to be tolerated. This world is simply a place to be endured. And ultimately, this place, this world, is some, somewhere to escape from, to get out of, to remove ourselves from, even in this life that we have now, but eventually when it's all said and done. Because for many of us, we believe that this world is not going to stay here forever. This ball that we're on, this planet, that it's, it's going to be, uh, you know, uh, just blown to smithereens, so to speak, by fire. And that God's going to just do away with it. And that we are going to dwell with him, if you're a follower of Christ, forever and ever. And this celestial, spiritual place that we call heaven. And that will be our eternity. But would you find it interesting this morning that that's not what the Bible teaches us? Yes, there is a heaven. And yes, if you're in Christ, you go there. But Revelation 21 very clearly teaches us, and the scriptures throughout teach us, that there is a new heavens and a new earth. And what we begin to realize as we walk through the story from Genesis to Revelation of the Bible, we begin to realize that the story that God's writing is not just that mankind has significance eternally, but everything does. All things. All of creation. What we've kind of moved ourselves into, so to speak, in modern Christianity is this thin gospel, what we're calling thin gospel. And here's simply what the thin gospel is, just two simple points, that there was a fall, meaning man fell from his state of innocence, meaning man was created by God, we'll look at it here in a minute, sinless, in perfect communion and union with him. And then in Genesis 3, the fall comes and sin enters into the world, and therefore man is marred. Men and women are separated from God, and we need a Savior. That's the second point, redemption. We need someone who will come and redeem us. God, would you redeem us? And that's the simple two points of the thin gospel. Now, this is not wrong. This is biblical. This is good. This is the gospel that many of us share. Man is sinful. We need a Savior. The Savior is Jesus. He's our hope. He's our salvation. Proclaim that to the day that you die. That is a good gospel, but it's a lacking gospel because there's two other points that we often don't think about that are hugely significant to the story of the Bible. And so we'll call that the thick gospel. And the thick gospel has four points. 
that surround those two points of the thin gospel. The first one is creation. We've got to enter into the story of creation to begin to see and understand what was God doing in creation and what he was setting up, what it looked like, what his purpose was, what he established when he created all things, including us. Then comes the fall, as we talked about. And yes, we need a redeemer. But what is that redeemer doing? What is Jesus doing? He is redeeming not just us to himself, which is beautiful, but he's redeeming all things, making all things new. The language that we get in Revelation 21 is that the new heavens and new earth where Christ will make all things new. Not he will make all new things, but he'll make all things new, meaning what's here will be perfected. And that includes you and me if we're in Christ. And so it's a more robust gospel. It's a thicker gospel to understand how it all fits together. And so we're going to focus on that today. And we're going to look primarily at creation and then fall, and then the fall a little bit, redemption and consummation. But I want to give you this morning, I want to give you this overarching kind of 35,000 foot view of what the story of the scriptures are and how it begins to relate to the places God has put us. Where we live, why does that matter? And so today we'll feel like you're up here, you're getting a good big picture, hopefully, and then in the weeks to come, we'll begin to move into more specifics of, okay, so then how can I live that out in practical ways in the city that I live in? So if you will, turn to, turn to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to read from starting in verse 26 through verse 31. Verse 26 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It wasn't just good. That's what he had said previously in the creation account up into this point. But once his crowning creation was in place, which is Mankind, made in the image of God, who were to reign over all the earth and with him. Once that crowning creation is in place, then he says, it's very good. It's very good. And then he finishes it up by saying, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Creation. What is God doing in creation and as it pertains to this place, this earth? Where, he, where he's put us. First, just two points this morning. The first one is simply this. God created us to love places. God created us to love places. First and foremost, you'll notice in the text, and I'll, we'll actually look at a, at a verse in chapter 2 that we didn't look at yet, but he created us 
to be in a place and to make it our home, to cause it to flourish. Look at, look at verse 8 in chapter 2 of Genesis. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So he created a place for man. He said, this is your place. And then listen to what he says, verse 15. A few verses later, Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So that language, to work it and to keep it. By the way, remember this, work is pre-fall. Okay, God commanded man to work before sin came into the world. Oftentimes we have the misconception that, sin was a part of the, uh, that, that work was a part of the curse that he gave to Adam when he said thorns will come out of the ground, you need to work it, and you'll work it by the sweat of your brow. And we say, oh, man, why do I have to work? It'll be, be so good when I get to heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, and I won't have to work anymore. Bad news. Actually, it's good news. <laughs> you will work in eternity. But it'll be beautiful, and it won't, the land that we're on and this new heavens, the new earth won't be hard for us, and the work that we do won't be hard. It'll be amazing and God-glorifying because this is how God designed it. He put him in the garden, and he said, work it and keep it. And that language of working and keeping it is this language of take this place that I've given you and invest in it. Cause it to flourish. Be invested in this place to the extent that my glory expounds in it as I've given you the responsibility of it. Listen to some of this language in Genesis 1, 26. He says, not only do you make a home of it and cause it to flourish and dwell in it, but then he says, reign over it, rule it, subdue it, have dominion over it. Listen to 1, 26. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and so on and so forth. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. And then he repeats what he said in verse 26. So we hear that language, and because of our natural tendencies to think of those words, dominion and subdue and rule and reign, when we hear these words, we think of negative connotations because we've seen so many negative examples in the world around us. Maybe we've even experienced them ourselves. We've experienced some of us, stories in our own lives of people who have ruled and reigned over us and exercised dominion over us in a way that would be uh, anything but appealing. They were deeply hurtful and that wounded us in ways that we would say, why would God say have dominion over the earth? And what we have to remember is that what God set up was from his perspective of dominion, not ours. And dominion from him is not this, this hard reign that would be forceful, and it would be against our wishes and our will, and begrudgingly we would say, okay. But it's actually the benevolent care and shalom of God. This beautiful existence between us and God to where we are so in tune with him that he is in us, moving through us and working through us to where flourishing is happening through us in his creation. And his dominion, yes, is over us, but we love it. And then we exercise that same dominion in his image bearers of God. And we get to participate in him, with him in, in exercising this benevolent care and flourishing over the world around us. Notice the language in verse 28 where he says, be fruitful and multiply. What is God ultimately getting at there? He's saying, fill the earth 
with God worshipers. Fill the earth with those who are in my image. Be fruitful and multiply. And as the earth becomes more and more filled with those who love me and who are in my image and who are subduing the earth in my benevolent type way to where we're bringing the flourishing kingdom of God into place, in this place, then this is what God is doing. He's saying be fruitful and multiply. And it was good. It was very good. And something happened. We know what it is if you've been in or around church at all. You know that it all fell apart in Genesis 3. And we don't know how much time that was, by the way. It feels like, okay, created man in Genesis 2, and then Genesis 3, it all fell apart the next day. I don't know, maybe it had been some time there where they experienced this flourishing and this dominion and this union with God. But as they were in the garden, the serpent comes and deceives, and they bite into the hook of sin. And as the crowning creation of all creation, mankind, as he goes, so creation goes. When when man fell dead in the garden, all of creation fell dead. Romans 8 actually speaks of this, that creation itself groans for the day of redemption. See, when we fell dead, when sin came and infested us, And when we became marred by sin and everything for us began to break apart, the whole world and all of creation began to fall apart with us. And things around us became twisted and marred in such a way that we lost it all. Randy's been talking about this. We lost it all. Not only did we lose, first and foremost and most importantly, this union with God and his presence, but we lost our home. We were placed outside the garden. We lost our place, we lost our identity, we lost everything, and creation fell with us. You see, God created us to love and to rule and to reign and to serve creation for his glory. And what we've done with that because of our sin is we've taken that wonderful, beautiful mandate of God And we've construed it to make it about us to where now we rule and reign over our own lives. The natural tendency of our hearts is to rule and to reign over our own lives in such a way that it wouldn't be for God's glory but our own. It wouldn't be for his story being manifested but our story being manifested. It wouldn't be for his good but for what we deem to be good. And so what we end up doing is we end up taking these people these image bearers of God in the world today and these places that he's given us to reign and rule over and we begin to abuse them rather than use and serve them to the glory of God. We see this in so many ways. We see it throughout history. It's not hard to begin to make an argument for how we have fallen and how creation has fallen with us and how we will abuse image bearers and we will abuse the places where God has placed his people. We see it in the horrors of war over and over again, the unthinkable atrocities of things like the Holocaust, the rape of Nanking, which is not as well known as the Holocaust, but is equally detestable. We see it in modern-day wars, what ISIS is doing to image bearers, people who are made in the image of God, and they are completely slaughtering them because they have no value according to them. 
And the places that they go, that ISIS goes, they completely ransack the cities. These places that we're to cause flourishing are being destroyed. We see it in the slums of India where neither life nor place has any value. We see it in the slave trade of old where people were purchased and just only seen as as property. Treated with no value and given no place to live, no land to own. We see it in modern slave trade where women are treated as property as well, but in, in even a more, or not, I wouldn't say more, but an equally sadistic way for the pleasure of men who are eaten up with evil. We see it in so many ways, and I could go on and on. We even see it when we feel it deeply, when things like we, we know that the places that we're to be are to be flourishing, but we even feel it in something as insignificant, at least seemingly on the surface, is we have this beautiful view over this amazing landscape and a condo goes up in front of it. And we say, there's just something not right about that. We see it when this beautiful rock face has been defaced by graffiti. We say, this, this just doesn't feel right. But listen to this. We don't want to talk about in this series necessarily. I've said all that, and those are the abuses that we see, and some of us have even experienced, of how we abuse image bearers and the places that God has given us. But we don't necessarily want to focus in our context, in suburban Atlanta, necessarily, although we will at some level, of the abuses, but more so on our tendency to just simply neglect that they exist. Just ignoring it. You see, the common experience for, for so many of us in suburbanville is to just go about our business and drive from place to place and city to city and, and suburb to suburb and to drive through it but not really ever care or love that place. To not really want to in, enter into the story of that place. Yes, the big narrative of how did, how did Johns Creek even get here? How did Duluth get here? How did Norcross get here? How did, what's the story of this city, but then even the story of the people that you're rubbing shoulders with every day? It takes a lot to invest in that, so we just pull away. It's easier to consume in a place than to invest in it. It's easier to be in a place than to love it. For many of us, and this, I'm not saying this is, this is partly my story, and, and this is just how it is in the suburbs. For many of us, we live in one suburb, we work in another, our kids go to school in another, and our wife or husband lives, I mean, not lives, works in yet another. Right? So there's, we're just discombobulated, and we drive to place, to place, to place. And do we ever stop and think about where God has placed us and how I can be a vessel of his redemptive work? Because listen to what God is doing. He created us, and you heard the story of this, this beautiful narrative of what he wants to do and how he wants to bring flourishing through his image bearers to the places that he's put us, and then it all fell apart at the fall, but there's a good news story that interjects into all this. It's Jesus. I want you to think about Something that's happening in the writing of Genesis 1, it was written, it, the, the original audience that it was written to, it was actually written to God's people who at the time that they were likely receiving this from Moses had been through the Exodus. 
They had been in a land for 400 years where they had no home, they had no place, they had no identity. They were slaves. And the story that God begins to write for them, that he did write for them, is, is that he brings a mediator, an intercessor, a rescuer, a deliverer into their midst. And Moses comes in this fashion, and he goes and he intercedes and mediates before them, and he leads them out of bondage of slavery, and he pulls them out and makes them a possession of his own. And as he does that, he begins to lead them to a new place. And then he brings Joshua into the story as Moses dies before they enter the promised land. But then Joshua leads them into this land of flowing with milk and honey, and he leads them into this place, and it's the same commission is the same thing go and rule and reign and have dominion and cause this place to flourish as you as my image bearers as my people live in the story that I've written for you and God's people get into the new land and it wasn't long before they say it's not enough it wasn't long before they say we, we need more and they begin to marry themselves to idols and other nations and all this and they marry themselves out and get outside of what God has designed for them and there they are again in the same pattern of destruction. And the Old Testament shows us over and over and over again that there needs to be a better rescuer. We need a better Moses. We need a better Joshua. We need a better David. They're all pointing to this one who would come and be the best. Be the one that our souls have longed for. The story of the Exodus and what Moses is writing here and saying that you're created for a place to flourish and to be in communion with God is really just a microcosm of the bigger, grander story of Jesus, how Jesus is going to come. Don't miss this. And he did come, and we are so delighted to be on this side of the cross so that we see this, right? But Jesus comes, and he says, I'm going to take you out of the bondage of slavery to sin, and I'm going to intercede on your behalf, and I'm going to mediate on your behalf, and I'm going to substitute on your behalf, and through me, I'm going to pull you out of this mess that, you, that you're in, and I'm going to make you a possession of my own, and then I'm going to lead you into this new place to where the same commission that was given in Genesis 1.28, go and be fruitful and multiply and create God imagers all over this world, is explained to us again in new language in Matthew 28.19 where Jesus takes Genesis 1.28 and he basically says, yes, yeah, same thing again, but through me now. The story is complete. The rescuer has come. And now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Go and make God worshipers. Cause this place to flourish through the name of Jesus. It's the same story. It just gets better through the Redeemer and what he's done for us. He's redeeming us. That's the second point. God created us to love places. The second thing is he redeemed us to love places. To give us a new vision for where he has us. To understand that through Christ, everything has value. Everything and everyone. Not just God, his word, and the souls of men. As infinitely valuable as those things are, all things have value in this new created kingdom through Jesus. I want you to think about the early church. It grew tremendously within its first couple hundred years. And it's really fascinating to begin to look at why. 
What was it that caused them to just explode and multiply so quickly? And it didn't happen immediately. If you look at it statistically, and as best as we can tell, and those who've done the research, from the time that Jesus ascended and the church began, Acts, Acts uh, 2, the story of Pentecost, there was, it tells us there in Acts that there were about 70 followers of Christ. By the end of the first century, 100 AD, there were roughly, as best we can tell, about 25,000 followers of Christ. So it grew significantly, 70 to 25,000 in about 70 years. That's pretty significant. But the next 200 years are just almost mind-blowing. From about 100 A.D. until Constantine became the, the emperor of Rome in the early 300s A.D., the church grew from estimations of 25,000 to 20 million. And one of the reasons why is because they got this theology of place. They got it. They understood it. Here, listen to this quote from Rodney Stark. In this book, The Rise of Christianity, as he studied this, he says this, To cities... Filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with widows and orphans, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. When Christianity appeared, its superior capacity for meeting these chronic problems soon became evident and played a major role in its ultimate triumph. For what Christians brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture. Couple that quote with this very quick one from the letter to Diognetius, which was an early church, probably written sometime between 100 and 200 A.D., apologetics letter, defending the defending the faith, giving cause for why Christianity is true. And he says this, As the soul is to the body, so are the Christians to their city. As the soul is to the body, so are the Christians to their city. Here's a hard question for us. What we just read there from Stark and from that letter, would, would outsiders say the same thing about us today? Would they look at us and say, man, I don't really fully get them, and I don't, really, I don't know that I fully agree with what they teach, but I'll tell you this. They love their city so well that things take great value, and healing happens, and people are changed. And as the soul is to the body, man, the Christians are to the city. If we lost the church, the city would crumble. Or is it more true of us that we seclude ourselves in bubbles away from those around us and away from the city to where if we were gone, the city wouldn't even notice? I know that's really hard for me because it's convicting. Because if I'm deeply honest, I, I answer that with, you know, I'm not sure that they would really notice. I'm not trying to bring condemnation. I just want us to be challenged to think Am I moving into the places that God has put me? Am I, am I moving towards my neighbors? Am I moving into my community, into my school, into my workplace, into the, the, the neighborhood that I'm in, the apartment complex that I'm in, the condos that I'm nearby, whatever it may be? How has God placed me here for a reason to be an agent of his redemption and flourishing as the kingdom of God comes in me and through me to the world around me? 
How can I live out Genesis 1.28 and Matthew 28 in ways that God has ordained for me to walk in? The consummation is coming. Jesus will return. And when he comes back, as I've mentioned, everything, all things will be made new. Listen, listen to Colossians 1. I love this language of what Jesus is doing, what he has done and what he's continuing to do. Genesis, uh, not Genesis, Colossians, Colossians 1, 13, 13 through 20. Listen to this. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, all things. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. That's speaking of Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And then listen to this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus loves us and he loves all things. Think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world, the cosmos in the Greek that he gave to redeem a people unto himself and to redeem creation back to himself. How are you engaging in that narrative? Let me show you one last slide. I just want you to see this, the various cities that make up the the majority of the membership of our church. So most of our membership comes from Johns Creek, which you would imagine since the church is in Johns Creek. Then just below Johns Creek, Peachtree Corners, Norcross, South Forsyth, which is probably very soon going to be named Sharon Springs, Duluth, the eastern side of Alpharetta and Roswell. We got a good number of members from, from those two uh, cities, but the eastern side, kind of the eastern side of 400, most of our members are from there, and then Swanee. And then we have a sprinkling of others from places like Buford and Cumming and whatnot. But put Atlanta there at the bottom is kind of the foundation to all that. Because if, if you're really going to love where you live in the suburbs, then it's, it's, it's pretty much a, 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 a mandate, if you will, to love Atlanta as well. Because the, the suburbs don't exist apart from the city of Atlanta. And so as we begin to think about what it looks like to love where we live, how does that even impact how we love to the city, how we, how we express love to the city that we're tethered to? the big city of Atlanta. So really, in many ways, I've already said this, this is like an introduction. This is big, big picture. This is the story. This is the narrative of what God is doing. And we want to be a part of it in, in certainly proclaiming the gospel to people, proclaiming the gospel that they would know Jesus. But as we're doing that, that we are moving into our places to be used by God in a redemptive way as we bring healing as we bring restoration, as we bring new perspectives, and as we bring the gospel. I'll finish with this. One of my favorite places in the world is Fort Collins, Colorado. 
and the Rocky Mountain National Park that sits right outside of Fort Collins. The reason I love that place so much is because uh, Rachel and I were on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, or crew as it's called now, for 13 years. And pretty much almost every other summer, every two years, we would go out to Fort Collins. just happened to be the place that they picked many years ago. And we would go out there for training and equipping and leadership classes and seminary classes for me. And, and we loved being in that place. And it was an easy place to love because we were just simply consumers of the place. We would come in and we would stay for six or seven weeks and we would eat the great food that they had in really cool downtown Fort Collins. And, and we would consume and we would live there, but we really never loved the city because we were invested and because we wanted to enter into the story of the city and of the people of the city. It was more, I'm going to come in, I'm going to consume, and I'm going to leave. And that's, that's a place that's easy to quote-unquote love. It's harder to love a place when you begin to invest in it and see all the brokenness in it and then still say, I love this place. Rocky Mountain National Park is equally right there with it. As I, as I love Fort Collins, I love the park because it's just so easy to see the beauty of God in his creation. You get into the park and you get up on these mountain peaks and you look out over the valleys and you see the elk and you see the rams and you see all this wildlife and you just go, this is glorious. Creation screams of the glory of God. Man, I can see that clearly when I'm standing on a 12,000-foot peak in the Rocky Mountain National Park. It's not, easy, it's not hard to, to say, yes, creation is glorious, and we need to be a part of redeeming this. Look how beautiful it is. But here's the challenge. Are you treating where you live like we treated Fort Collins? Just a consumer. My home is not much more than a place where I lay my head and park my car. And I'm not really invested here, and I haven't really shown any care or love for the story of the city and the stories of the people here. And I'm not really wanting or longing to be a part of God's redemptive work in, in the brokenness of this place. It's just a place that I consume for me. And could you, here's the question, could you and I, is it possible, and the answer is yes, but could we, Begin to look at our places, our Norcross, our Johns Creek, our Swanee, our Duluth, so on and so forth. In Atlanta as a whole, can we begin to look at it with the awe and the wonder and the love of when we're standing in Rocky Mountain National Park? Could we see it and we could say, okay, this is broken on so many levels, but it's beautiful because of the story that God's weaving here. And people go, you see this is beautiful? Yes, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Why? Because God's at work. And, and friends, listen, he wants to use us to do his work. Like what a privilege, right? What, what an incredible calling that he would ask us to move into that story. And we get to be a part of it. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you think you're, you're here and you just go, man, I don't even know what I think about all this. This is a story that you want to be a part of, trust me of God redeeming you and then using you to redeem others in his creation. Let's pray to that end. Father, thanks for this time together this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your great grace in our lives. The fact that we have the living and active scriptures to open and to lead us and to guide us and to teach us and shape us. And Father, we pray for this series that it would be one that would, at the end of these five weeks, we would be really not only encouraged and challenged, but thankful for the opportunities that we have in the places that you have put us, the cities that we're in. God, use us. 
Give us faith to believe that you can and will and desire to use us. God, we love you. We thank you that you've rescued us and that you're using us to rescue others. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.